Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And I encourage you to have that passage uh, in front of you that uh, Jeff just read for us. Again, if you're using one of these Bibles, it's page 960, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. Let's again ask God's help as we come to His Word this morning. God, you are our fortress and you are our strength. You are an ever-present help in time of need. And each time we open your word, we realize our need. And our need is for you above all things. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to love and wills to respond to your word. And I pray um, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, God, our rock and our redeemer king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are nearing the end of our study through 1 Corinthians, and we're um, going to come back today uh, last week, we skipped ahead just a little bit. It was Resurrection Sunday, so we, we definitely needed to talk about the resurrection and see the resurrection in God's Word. And you see in chapter 15, which we're going to get into again and finish out uh, as we work our way through the end of the book, uh, is all about the resurrection. And so we'll be talking more about the resurrection in weeks to come. Uh, but we need to go back because we had left off a couple of weeks ago in the middle of chapter 14. And those, so this morning... We're going to finish out chapter 14, looking at verses 26 through 40. And remember that this um, end of chapter 14 is not just the end of a chapter, it's also the end of an entire section. A section that began, if you want to page back, in chapter 11 at verse 2, where Paul was beginning to address uh, disunity and disorder in the gathered worship. And in situations like this, when the church at Corinth gathered for worship. And if you remember the whole book, Paul has been addressing both concerns that the Corinthian church has, that they've written to him about, but also concerns that, that he has based on what he's heard about some things going on in the church uh, that just aren't right or, or don't conform to the character and the Word of God. And that's where he is in this section talking about the way that we worship together, the way that the Corinthians worship together, addressing in particular disunity and disorder. And so this morning in this chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 14, he's, he's wrapping that up. And he's also wrapping up a whole section that began in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. Remember, spiritual gifts are uh, abilities given by God to every believer through the Holy Spirit for the purpose of serving the church at large. And there was a lot of confusion about gifts and which gifts were most important. And one of the things we said, if you recall, about spiritual gifts is perhaps we should think of them less about sort of static um, sort of personality types or static 
uh, abilities or gifts and, and more dynamic things. In other words, it's not just I have this gift or I am this gift. But when we, when we come together as God's people, we should be earnestly praying and desiring different manifestations of the Spirit in our midst. Uh, that, that God might manifest for that time. And He might not do it the same every time. And so when we come together, we really want to pray in a situation like this for, for gifts of, of hearing God's Word and gifts of responding to God's Word and gifts of understanding God's Word. And if you recall, there were a couple of gifts that were out of, out of balance uh, for the Corinthian church, for these believers. Uh, they have really elevated one gift that they said that they thought really spoke to a person being really spiritual, uh, of having arrived. And this was a thing, if you recall, with the Corinthians. They wanted to know who were the spiritual. They even used that term, who were the spiritual. Uh, it's kind of interesting because the word for, for spiritual is the same word for spirit. It's, it's pneumatikos. Like pneumatic tires means being filled with air. Well, the word for spirit is air or wind. So it means, but they were kind of filled with a lot of air at times in terms of their understanding about who was truly spiritual. And what they thought is if you had this gift of tongues, this ability to speak in, in a heavenly unknown language, that that really showed, that, that was really dynamic and that really showed that you had arrived and you were truly spiritual. And so that was a big emphasis in their gatherings together. And Paul corrected them on this and said, you know what, you shouldn't be emphasizing that because most of the time when people are speaking in this, this heavenly language, they don't even understand what they're saying. And so their spirit may be speaking directly to God, but it's not, it's not building up the church as a whole. And so you need to de-emphasize that. But there is a gift, a gift of words that can build up the church. And we uh, talked about what, it, what the gift of prophecy is. This, this impression of, spirit, of biblical truth that the Spirit will put on someone's mind. You'll say, I really believe I need to share that with my brother or sister, or I need to share that in a gathered context. And if it proves to, to both be consistent with God's Word, which always is above anything that we say and, and is the criteria for judging it. And if it has impact for the moment, we understand that to be the gift of prophecy. And, and there can be many ways that that happens. And we're, we're not necessarily always saying, hey, I'm prophesying right now. We, we simply speak God's word to one another. And we encourage one another. And, and it proves out many times to have impact. And so Paul said, you ought to be emphasizing a speaking gift like that that is intelligible that has greater potential for building up the entire body. And so when we left off in chapter 14, Paul was doing just that. He was, he was telling them to downplay the tongues and upplay the words that could edify. If you remember just looking back at chapter 14, he talks about building up the church three or four or five times in that chapter. In other words, this ought to be your goal when you come together, that you emphasize the gifts of the Spirit that would build one another up. Well, this morning we're going to pick up right there and we're going to work through uh, this latter half of chapter 14. And um, let's, we're going to put the um, outline of this, this, uh, these verses up for you. And uh, just real simple, basic, straightforward approach this morning. We're going to begin to try to understand the text. We're going to focus in on the key theme and then we're going to embrace the 
implications of that for our life together. But here, here's the basic outline of the text that we're going to look at. Two, sort of two big parts, instructions regarding gathered worship, and then a warning from the one we worship. And within those instructions, there's two particular instructions, one having to do with words, or again, speech within gathered worship, and the other having to do with women in gathered worship. So let's begin to walk through this text together. Let's begin with words in gathered worship. Paul begins in verse 26 by saying, what then, brothers and sisters? What then? Well, he's talking, he's leaning back on what he's just said. He's just told them, you need to de-emphasize the tongue speaking. You need to emphasize the words that edify, like prophecy, okay? Then he's answering his own question. So what then? How do we go about that? And Paul begins to give them some very specific instructions for their, their gatherings together. And we get a picture into what, a, a, we might say, a church service looked like for the church at Corinth some 2,000 years ago. Paul says in verse 26, when you come together, and that term, when you come together, is almost a, a, a technical way of saying when you gather to worship as the church body. So when you come together, he's talking about a, a gathering like this. Each one has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. And we look at that and we say, wow, that, I see some things that look like our gathered worship, but I, I wonder if sounds like their gathered worship might look a little bit different than ours. And certainly it did. Uh, they did not have buildings like this, any kind of public buildings. Certainly not a traditional church building, but not public buildings like this to gather in. And so when they came together as a church, uh, they were doing it in a home. And many biblical scholars wonder if the church of Corinth would have even had the chance for the whole church to ever gather because that would have taken a rather large home. So it's, it's possible that the church uh, here and other places in the first century uh, were, were groups of house churches. Uh, but whatever it was, they were gathering in homes. And so their Sunday morning worship probably didn't look exactly like this. If you think about what our home group meetings look like, it probably looks something was probably not quite as informal as a home group meeting, uh, but not quite as structured as what we're doing this morning. So it's probably something in between. That's what their worship service most likely would have looked like. We read this and we say, well, is this what our worship service should look like? Should it look exactly like the things that are listed here? And here, we, here we're running into a challenge that we often have with God's Word and understanding what is prescriptive, you should do this, and what is descriptive. It's just describing a situation. And I don't think this is prescriptive, saying this is exactly what your worship service should look like. For one thing, there are several important elements that, that are left out of this short list about the elements of their worship service. Nothing is mentioned about prayer. Nothing is mentioned specifically about preaching or teaching. Uh, nothing is mentioned here about the sacraments like the Lord's Supper. Although Paul gave them instructions earlier uh, about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 because they were having some, some real challenges in how to do that. And so we know that what, what Paul lists here is not the sum total of what would have happened in a church service or a worship gathering for the Corinthians. In fact, if you look at what's listed here, there's a similarity in everything that's listed. Look again at the elements. A, a hymn. 
a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. These are all ways that God's people speak biblical truth to one another. And that is certainly consistent with what Paul is addressing here. He's been addressing our words in worship together. And so what, he's, what we're learning here has specifically to do with the way that we address one another, our speech, the give and take in our gatherings. And so I want to encourage you to take what we're learning this morning and apply it not only to this context, Sunday morning, gathered whole church, but also to meetings that are more like our home group meetings, smaller groups that meet for worship, for Bible study, to build one another up. Well, Paul begins to correct their, their use of words because things apparently uh, were out of control. And again, he's focusing in on doing that which will build one another up, focusing in on intelligible words. And so, again, with the speaking in tongues, he says, you know, if there's not two or three at the most, but if there's not anyone to interpret, nobody knows what's being said, uh, then no one's going to be built up. And so, in that case, that shouldn't even be happening in your worship services. And then in regard to uh, prophetic speech, word, these words of encouragement, these grace-filled words, um, you know, two or three is fine, but no service or no gathering should only be about one element of worship. Even if you think about our worship here this morning, there are, there's singing, there's praying, there's greeting, there's preaching, there's announcements. There, no, no one thing should dominate. And no one person should dominate. We've all been in that small group, right? And even though they might have something really good to say, Paul says, listen, somebody's prophesying and somebody else has something to say, allow them to say that so that all could be built up. See, what Paul is understanding here in terms of our, our speech and our words with one another is what uh, is written in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, that when words are many... Transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his or her lips is prudent. Jesus gave a similar warning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, specifically about prayer. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles or the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, but do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. And Paul is understanding what the Corinthians' uh, besetting sin was here, of, of this spiritual pride that they thought that, that more words meant that they were more spiritual. And so he's emphasizing here order, uh, intelligibility in your worship. In particular, because he didn't want people to come into a gathering of the Corinthians and confuse it with, with idol worship. See, in the, in the pagan worship in Corinth, uh, there would often be these sort of people who would work themselves up into a frenzy and speak what, what might have looked like speaking in tongues and sort of a, in a static sort of trance. And Paul says, no, the, you need to reflect the God that you worship. Notice what Paul says about God uh, in verse, the beginning of verse 33. Our God is not a God of, of disorder, of, of confusion, of chaos. Oh, no, no. Our God is a God of peace. He is a God of order. And so the way that, that you worship, the tone of it, the way that you worship, it should reflect the God that you worship. He is the one that we, we praise. He is the one that we adore. He is the reason we've gathered. He is the object 
of our worship. Really appreciates um, something called worship that Mike Cosper, who is a worship a pastor of worship in Louisville, Kentucky, calls Worship 123. I really find this helpful in thinking about what should happen when we gather in a context like this or other worship gatherings. He says, Worship should have one object, the triune God. He is the one that we praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the reason we gather here on a Sunday morning. But worship has two contexts. We, we, we gather narrowly as the church in, in a setting like this, but all of life is worship. All of, life should ref, of our life should reflect our adoration of our God and our King. And then when we worship, there are three audiences, one object. We're all worshiping God, but, but God is listening. We want Him to hear our praises, but we're listening to one another. And one of the ways that we encourage and that we edify one another is when you hear the voices of your sister or your brother worshiping or singing or speaking scripture next to you as we're gathered. And when those who don't know Christ come into our setting, they're listening. Paul talked about that um, earlier in chapter 14, that, that he was exhorting them that they're worship together, be intelligible. You don't want people to come in and, and on your worship service and think that you're out of your mind because you're doing crazy stuff and it's not intelligible. I mean, if they're going to be offended, have them be offended by the offense of the gospel, not by your wackiness. And so our worship should reflect the one that we worship. Well, let's continue on. That's Paul's instruction regarding words in gathered worship. He goes on to speak about women in gathered worship. And we need to recognize right now at the outset that this is a challenging, challenging portion of Scripture. Uh, it's challenging textually. Uh, there are some um, issues in the text that, that make translating some of this a challenge and leads some scholars uh, to even question whether some of this is authentic uh, or not. It's challenging in interpretively. Uh, what does this mean? And it's challenging culturally. Because this is, when Paul says he forbids a woman to speak in church, that's not something our culture understands. It, it sounds very sexist at first blush, doesn't it? And so there are challenges here, and we need to recognize that. At the same time, this is where our understanding and our commitment to the, the truth and the veracity and the understandability of God's Word really needs to, keep, to kick in. Because we need to reaffirm and exercise faith that, that God's Word has meaning. Just because deriving that meaning may be difficult at times, uh, just because it may clash with what our culture thinks at times uh, doesn't mean there isn't meaning there. It doesn't mean we don't have to sometimes work hard to find that meaning. But it's understandable. And we need to realize that the meaning of God's Word is not bound to one time frame or to one culture, but that it is, a, it is for time and eternity uh, and applicable to all cultures in all times. And then we need to realize that Whatever God's Word says is good. 
and it's for our good. It's there for our building up. With that in mind, let's, let's tackle these challenging verses. First of all, what Paul is not saying. I do not believe that Paul is saying that a woman may not, may not ever speak in a gathering like this. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I think we need to hear, and the intention is that we hear different voices. We need to hear female voices when we're gathered. We need to hear uniquely feminine voices, voices created to be feminine when we're gathered. And so what then? What is, what is Paul saying then? Because he says, I forbid a, a woman to, to speak in church. Women should be silent in the churches. Well, context is everything when we're studying God's Word. And if we, if we look at the context of this and the speaking and the words that are being said, earlier in the passage, back um, in verse 29, Paul was talking about how when a, when a person believes they have a prophecy, that that prophecy needs to be weighed. Uh, that just because you think that the Spirit has impressed something on your heart or mind that should be spoken, uh, others need to, need to weigh in on that and decide whether that is authentic or not. Uh, when it says the others need to weigh in, I don't think that has anything to do with people stranded on a desert island or the Game of Thrones. Others are, I think, the church gathered. In other words, we have responsibility to one another, uh, to, 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 to care for one another in the weighing of what is said. But even though it's the church that would weigh what is said, ultimately it is the leadership of the church that's going to have to make um, a decision and shepherd that through. And we know that from Acts that throughout Paul's ministry, he appointed leadership. He appointed men who were elders and were given the task of shepherding and leading the church. And so when Paul talks here about a woman to keep silent in, in the churches, he's talking about this function of authoritatively judging or giving leadership or authority over the prophecies made in the church. It's very similar to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said there, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And in both cases, Paul grounds that instruction in Scripture. Here he just says, in the law. There he specifically refers to Genesis chapter 2, which is the account of creation. He says, given the way that God created things, he created the man first and then he created the woman. That wasn't a matter of valuing, saying who's better or not, but it was a matter of distinction, and it was a matter of authority and response. And so based on that, God has ordained that both within the home in terms of husbands and wives, husbands leading, wives submitting, and in terms of the leadership of the church, that qualified men are to lead the church and be elders, and that all of us are to respond to that leadership God has ordained these roles for men and for women the way he created them, male and female, in the church and in the home. And so here I believe Paul is talking about exercising authority in terms of the evaluation of the words spoken here. 
And in that context, that would not be one of the women's role of the church, but it would be one of the leaders, one of the men who is a qualified leader of the church. Now, that understanding of roles in the home and roles in the church, as communicated in Scripture, saying that, that men and the women are, are equally equal before God in terms of our personhood. We are equal before God in terms of our fallenness and our need for redemption. And we are equally redeemed through Jesus' blood and his finished work. That in the kingdom of God, there is no male and female in that sense. That understanding of that equality, coupled with distinction, that God created us not to be interchangeable, but that he created us male and he created us female. And that we flourish as human beings when we, when we embrace how God has created us. That understanding has a label. It's called complementarianism. That men and women are not the same. They, they complement. We should complement one another. But this is saying we complement one another. We, we, we fill in the gaps. Together, we, we give a full picture of the image of God. And that is contrasted with uh, the other position, which would be egalitarian. Uh, an egalitarian understanding, a Christian egalitarian understanding would say, men and women may have some differences, um, genetically and so forth, but, but all roles in the church, all roles in the home are, are equally available to both. We're, we're there, there's, there's sameness there. This church teaches, based on passages like this and the passage in 1 Timothy that I quoted, chapter 2, a, a complementarian understanding of Scripture. And I, I affirm that as well. And I think we flourish well when we understand our roles as men and women. At the same time, as a complementarian who has functioned in complementarian churches, I think there are some things that we need to be careful of. And so I just want to list three things that I think that, that biblical complementarians need to be careful of, especially in the function and the life of the church. And the first is this, that, that ultimately when it comes to leadership in the church, it's not men versus women but it's qualified men in comparison to unqualified men. And the point of the passages in Scripture that talk about leadership in the church is, is not to be um, voraciously excluding women, but rather elevating men who are qualified, elevating the fact that they should be qualified. And so often I think perhaps in the history of the church where, where women have stepped into leadership, it's been sometimes the result of their not being qualified men. And so I think that really behooves us as a church to, to invest in cultivating godly men who can lead in the church and meet the qualifications, particularly of elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. But also, number two, we need to be investing in women who are gifted to lead. Uh, just because women are not called to lead in the oversight and authority of the church doesn't mean there aren't women in this body who are gifted to lead and need to be equipped and need to be uh, shepherded in terms of honing their leadership. 
and help to find areas where there is appropriate leadership for them to exercise. And then thirdly, I just think we need to be careful not to be overly sensitive on this topic. I've been in gatherings, mixed gatherings, where there's, someone has asked for a volunteer to pray, and none of the women will volunteer to pray. Because God forbid that somehow or other, in their prayer, they be construed as exercising authority over a man or usurping his authority. And so sometimes I think we just, get, we just need to just loosen up a little bit, understand what God's Word says, affirm who one another are as men and as women, both how we are different and how we serve well uh, together. And so the ordering, not only the ordering of the elements of worship, but also the ordering of our roles in worship as men and women have implications for how we worship well together. Well, third section, final section of this text is a warning from the one we worship. And Paul concludes uh, not only this text that we're looking at this morning, but he's concluding this entire section uh, that began in chapter 11 with these words in verses 36 uh, through 40. Notice in verse 7, uh, verse 37, uh, that is. In verse 37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing are a command from the Lord. That is everything he's been writing in this section, not just the portion that we're looking at this morning. And his conclusion here is a serious warning to the church not to operate autonomously, either as a church or as an individual's. He's saying, guys, you just don't get to make this stuff up as you go along. Look again at verse 36. Was it from you that the Word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command. It's a stern warning. You're not the first ones to arrive here. And Paul's warning uh, is, gets even firmer when he says uh, in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, if anyone doesn't recognize what I'm writing, he is not going to be recognized. Paul says, you need to recognize that what I am writing is from the Lord Jesus. Paul's talking about his commission from the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle. Paul says not only is there the Word of God, but he seems to understand that, that what he is writing is the Word of God as well. That as an apostle, what he's writing is the Word of God. He's a transmitter of the Word of God. And if you don't recognize that, he says you are in serious danger of not being recognized, not being recognized by God on the last day. I mean, that's pretty serious, but it, it's real. If, if a person is not willing to put themselves under the authority of God's Word and what it says, they're not standing on solid ground in terms of their relationship with Christ if they're not willing to follow His Word. And so Paul says the bottom line is what, what you have to say, believers, 
is not nearly as important as what God has already said, namely in His Word. And so whether in in a gathered worship context or in any aspect of church life, none of us is a freelancer. None of us is an independent contractor. And so we need to make it our goal to do everything in worship in a way that reflects the God that we worship. And Paul again says in verse 40, things should be done in your gathered worship decently or or in good form, in, in 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 a lovely, pleasing way and in order. The way you worship should reflect the one you worship. And that, in fact, is the the theme, as we focus toward the key theme of this passage. The way we worship as a local church matters. Both the activities that we do when we worship, the components of our worship, the what, as well as our heart attitudes, how we worship. Both the what and the how must reflect the character of the one that we worship. And in particular, this text is pointing us to this characteristic of our God, that He is a God of peace. Paul said it in verse 33. God is not a God of confusion or disorder. He is a God of of peace or of order or of harmony. This is actually one of the attributes of God that um, that theologians have, have thought about and written about over the years. You know, sometimes, has anyone ever studied the attributes of God in a Bible study? Uh, God is holy, and God is just, and God is righteous, and God is um, gracious, and God is all-knowing, and God is all-present. And God is a God of peace, or order, or harmony. Wayne Grudem defines it this way. In God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion or disorder, yet he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordained, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. Our God is a God of peace, not only in his being, but in everything he does as he upholds the entire universe by the power of his word, he is doing multiple millions and billions of different coordinated activities all to perfection, all for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And he's not in a hurry. He's doing it peacefully, in order, in harmony. It's working together. This is an aspect of who he is. This is an aspect of who he is as our creator king. Think about how God created the universe. He created it out of nothing, but he didn't do it in a moment. He did it over six days. And and he made, he separated the light and the dark. And he made the, the sky and the sea, and he, he made the dry land. He made, he made these in an orderly way, these contexts. And then he filled them with the sun and the moon and the stars and with the, with the birds and the fish and with the, with the animals and the people. And there was order every day. There was evening and there was morning. And at the end of every day, it was good, it was good, it was good, and then it was very good. 
God created everything to, to, to flourish. He created it systematically. He even gave uh, the, the man the, the job of naming the animals, of giving uh, categories to the animals. So creation expresses that God is a God of peace, or as the, the Hebrew, the Bible word says, a God of shalom, of well-being, of, of flourishing. Well, creation was messed up through sin and through human rebellion, which can be defined as disorder, as chaos. I mean, isn't that what sin is in our lives? When we don't follow our king, when, when we want to freelance and do it our own way, has that ever caused order and peace in your life? Just the opposite. It causes chaos. It causes disorder. Things spin out of control and, and we, we can't seem to get our arms around it. And yet, God's redemption of humanity, again, well-ordered. Jeff mentioned this earlier, before time began, God had a plan for our redemption. And he put that plan into motion the moment that the man and the woman in the garden rebelled against him. And he made a promise. And he continued to make promises about a redeemer. And then in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, Christ came. And at just the right moment, while we were yet sinners, Christ came died for us. And we even see in Jesus' ministry, he took, his, he took his time according to plan. Everything he needed to do, the prophecies that he fulfilled, the death that he died, the three days in the grave, the rising again, the ascending to the right hand of God the Father, the pouring out of his spirit on his people to empower them for mission, all done according to plan. All done in harmony. And when we think about the God, we think about God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person of the Godhead having their role in our redemption. God the Father planning it. God the Son accomplishing it and carrying it out through His, his death and resurrection. And God the Spirit applying that reality to our lives, opening up our eyes to the glory of Christ in the gospel, providing us with faith to believe. There's order, there's harmony in the God who loves us, in the God who made us, in the God who redeemed us. It's peace. But unlike peace that we attempt sometimes, uh, it didn't come through negotiation. Uh, it didn't come through an armistice. It came through a hard-fought, bloody victory in the war. That the peace that we enjoy when we trust Jesus for salvation came because he fought the war on the cross and his blood was shed. And so we have peace. Through faith in him, we have peace with God. And our gatherings together, the ways that we worship, ought to reflect the God that we worship. His peace, the harmony, and the order that he brings to our lives. Only the beauty of Christ made known to us in the gospel provides us with the power to put to death our own self-will and to live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And so God re redeems us from the, the ugliness 
of the chaos in our lives through the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man. And how we worship together should reflect that. So, so what does that look like? Let's think, let's think through, br- real briefly here, three implications. We worship a God of peace. That ought to be reflected in our gathering in times like this, in our gathering in our home groups and other settings as well. So let's think about the, the harmony in our gathered worship keeping these sets of values in balance and in harmony, three sets of values to keep in balance in our worship together. The first is that our worship should be both planned and spontaneous. Worship that is harmonious, that reflects a God of peace, should be both planned and spontaneous. There should be a game plan to our worship together, but not necessarily a rigid script. And we see that in our Sunday morning services. There are elements that have been planned, uh, but there are are times when there can be uh, spontaneity and where we can deviate from the plan. And and by the way, this peace or peacefulness in our worship, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily equate with quiet or lack of exuberance. I'm thinking of some of the uh, video I've seen of, of V-Day when the Allies won World War II. Have you seen some of the pictures or video of that? And there, there is great exuberance at the victory. There's great joy at the peace that's been won. And so peace is not always quiet. But it ought to be both planned and spontaneous. We see that in our worship services together. We, we see probably more of the planned in a situation like this. But then in a home group meeting, there needs to be a plan. Home group leaders have to come to the, can't just, can't just wing it, folks. Uh, but there's more space for spontaneity. There's more space for, for, for give and take in the words that we speak to one another. We saw this in our last home group meeting a couple of weeks ago. I, I had a plan for what we were going to do and what we were going to study together. Uh, but as we, as we gathered together and started sharing what was going on in our lives, uh, it was clear that we just needed to pray for one another that night. There were, there were things happening in people's lives that really needed to be prayed about. and uh, So we had a wonderful meeting uh, that didn't go as planned, but according to the spontaneity of the moment. And so worship that reflects our God is both planned and spontaneous. It's also similarly both directed and participatory. There needs to be leadership in our worship gatherings. There need to be people up here leading and directing us through. And then we need to respond to that. But we need to respond. Think about responding in our worship as being a passenger on a motorcycle. Not the driver, but the passenger. And you're, you're, you're riding along and the driver begins to turn. What do you need to do as a passenger? You need to lean, right? You need to lean in or you're going to be going off that way. And that's what we need to do when we come and worship together. Uh, Not just sit back, but be ready to participate, uh, to to lean in. Uh, If someone's praying up here, lean into that prayer. Pray along with them. My goodness, you could even do that out loud if you wanted to. People are singing. Lean into that. Don't just mouth the words, but, but be part of the worship that we're doing together. 
Our worship needs to be both directed and participatory. It strikes me that with, with both the, the, the planned and the directed on one side and the spontaneous and participatory on the other, that this setting is much more the leaned, is much more weighted toward planned and directed, where something like our, our home groups is much more weighted toward the spontaneous and the participatory. Which leads me to encourage us that we need both, right? If this is the only setting where you see your brothers and sisters of Kishwaukee Bible Church, uh, you, you probably don't have the balance of worshiping together. Uh, if you rarely come to this and you, you only want to do something like a home group, then you don't have the balance of the planned and directed worship. So we need, we need both. Opportunities where we can be led through planned worship and opportunities that have greater participation and spontaneity. And then finally, our worship should be balanced by being both rooted and fresh. Rooted, connected to historical Christianity. And fresh, open to new expressions of the unchanging truth of the gospel. It's not about my favorite thing or my favorite song or, or my favorite worship activity. We need to realize that none of us are the first Christian uh, generation. We stand on 2,000 years of rich church history. And so there, there are hymns that are historic that we should embrace. There, there are prayers historically written. There are creeds. Uh, as someone who, who teaches, I need, to, I need to study what others in past generations have said about a text. At the same time, we need to be open to new songs or open to fresh expressions of old songs, open to fresh voices, new ways of expressing the truth once delivered for all the saints. At least five times in the book of Psalms, we are not just encouraged, but commanded to sing a new song. Listen to this as we close this morning from Psalm 96. Oh, sing a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord. He is our King. Greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods. For the gods of the people are wor peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty belong to Him. Strength and beauty are in this sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty, we could even say the harmony of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Friends, the Lord reigns. He is our King. He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. We are His subjects. He is the King of peace, and our worship should reflect Him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And we praise You that it is a reflection of who You are. Lord, we don't have to guess at what you're like. We know that the, the, the vastness of you, that there's more 
about you that we'll never know, but there are things that we can know and that you want us to know and that you want us to experience about your character. And so, God, we praise you this morning as a God of peace, as a God who brings us peace through the victory of your Son on the cross. And Lord, we recognize that you are the object of our worship. You alone, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are the one we praise, and you are the one we adore. We pray this in your name. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.